Science Friday is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. What if we could block a protein to stop runaway cell division? Dana-Farber laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, drugs that are increasing the survival rate for many advanced breast cancer patients. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Science Friday is supported by Progressive. Now, most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Science Friday is supported by Random House, publisher of When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi a memoir from a doctor-turned-patient about the fragile beauty of our mortal lives. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is available at prh.com slash air. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Science Friday. I'm musician and writer Dessa, filling in for Ivor Flato. Later in the hour, we're going to talk about techno-ableism and how those seemingly inspirational videos about scientific breakthroughs might be muddying the real stories of disability technology. But earlier this month, an FDA panel agreed that a common decongestant ingredient, phenylephrine, which is found in drugs like Sudafed and NyQuil, doesn't work. And this pains me as a NyQuil fan, fam. While the panel agreed that phenylephrine isn't dangerous, it doesn't work any better than a placebo. Which made us wonder, how well do placebos work? And how come they work even when people know they're getting a placebo? Here to talk more about the current landscape of placebo research is my guest, Ted J. Kapchuk, professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and director of placebo studies and therapeutic encounter at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Welcome to Science Friday. Thanks for having me. Okay, can I ask, the FDA panel's pronouncement on the phenylephrine, you know, the, the, the objection was that this substance wasn't working any better than a placebo. How did you respond when you first heard that news break? When I heard that, the question is, how did they know there was a placebo effect? The data is really coming from two very good randomized controlled trials that tested phenylephrine versus a placebo, and there was no difference. But what was in that placebo is more than just placebo effects. Common colds with congestion go away by themselves. The only way you would know it was a placebo effect is if you had a third arm that actually had just watch and wait, no treatment. And you would say, oh, is the placebo treatment more than nothing? And nothing is not doing anything. Giving a placebo includes the rituals, the symbols, and the acts of human kindness that are surrounding pills. That's hugely helpful. And it feels like that was a piece that hasn't been discussed. Yeah. in the way that it's I never think. discussed. OK, so let's dispel confusion. Can you give me like the quick and dirty definition of placebo? Sure. A placebo, first of all, is not the effect of an inert substance. Inert substance don't have effects. Placebos are what surrounds inert substance or placebo pills that includes 
rituals, symbols, uncertainty, hope, and acts of human kindness. That combustible mix, sometimes in some people, makes people get better. And that's what a placebo effect is. Okay, so it sounds like what you're doing there is differentiating an inert substance that I might receive in that ritual environment of a doctor's office with the care, the consultation, the expectation from, you know, an inert substance that's like eating a red Skittle by myself. It really has to be sort of loaded with that cultural freight. Is that right? Yeah, I'm going to say that it doesn't have to be too much loaded because especially when you're dealing with chronic pain patients, which I think placebos are mainly helpful for, is just encountering a supportive, kind doctor and just normal routine care actually will elicit a placebo effect. And I think when most of us think of the the placebo effect, we often do think of that inert substance. We imagine, you know, a little white pill with no medicine in it. What are the other form factors that a placebo can take? I mean, anything that essentially doesn't have any impact on a patient's condition could be called a placebo. Honest placebos don't have side effects. The dogma in medicine has been, since we began using placebo controls, is that if you know it's a placebo, you won't get a placebo effect. You have to fool, conceal, or deceive patients to get a placebo effect. Honest placebo, what's usually called open-label placebo, is giving patients placebo pills and telling them it doesn't have a pharmacological effect, but in some people, some of the time, just taking the pills, even if you don't believe it, even if you think it's crazy, will sometimes make the mind reformulate signals perceptions or symptoms and may have benefit for a person. That's what uh, honest placebo might mean. I think that's really counterintuitive and fascinating for most of us. It's totally counterintuitive. Our patients say, you must be kidding. And we say, listen, you don't have to do this. You don't want to. And we're trying it out. And if you decide to be in our study, all you have to do is take it twice a day for a number of weeks of the study. And people find it really hard. And we have to tell people that, listen, this does not mean it's in your head that you're getting a placebo response. Mm. In fact, the body has an internal pharmacy that releases neurotransmitters like endorphins, cannabinoids. Has a, we know it activates specific quantifiable areas in the brain that actually change how you perceive symptoms. When you talk about an honest placebo, I think I've also heard the term open-label placebo, where the patients who are receiving it know it's a placebo. Is that one way to address what might be like complicated ethical issues in providing people an inert substance? Yeah, open-label placebos, the, the usual way our team described an honest placebo. And basically, it is being very clear with absolute transparency and honesty that what we're giving you is a placebo. And you don't have to believe it, expect it, or hope it's going to help. And um, placebos have been tainted by the trickery, by deception, by concealment. And the idea that the placebo pill with no active ingredient can still have benefits, can still have impact on patients for their benefit is against the traditional dogma. And it's only in the last 10, 15 years that the evidence has been accumulating that placebos can benefit patients, even when they know it's placebo. And, and the reason that's really critical ethically is any form of open-label placebos are transparent, honest, have full informed consent. There's no deception or concealment. Placebos are really a tricky thing. They've been tainted by a myth or superstition that they work because you think you're going to get better. It's actually deeper than that. It's your body is doing something that tells it it can modulate the symptoms, turn down the false fires of many chronic symptoms, and actually deliver some comfort. 
And just to be clear, I think when you talk about, you know, this tainting of our association and our understanding of placebos, you're talking about the deception that was involved when we would provide an inert substance to a patient who didn't know that they were receiving an inert substance. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Or concealed okay. in a randomized controlled trial, which is ethical, but it still has this idea of trickery. Okay, so in your studies more generally, can you can you tell me when and how are placebos most helpful in medicine and what are the limits? Placebos don't shrink tumors. Placebos don't help malaria. What placebos are especially good for is chronic illnesses with chronic symptoms. And what happens is many chronic symptoms are really the brain and the nervous system being hyperactive, almost like a false alarm, and it amplifies the symptoms that we have. And what happens is with placebos, when taking the placebos, not thinking about placebos, but taking placebos, being in that ritual, the brain gets some feeling that it should turn down the volume. It doesn't have to amplify or increase the signal. And that's, it's really a form of changing what the message is that the brain is interpreting in terms of discomfort. And it's mainly chronic symptoms that I think you have placebo effects symptoms or others, but that's the main place you see large, consistent placebo effects. So one of the studies I know that you've been personally involved in explores the promise of placebo treatment in patients who are receiving methadone to treat opioid addiction. And I know that that works with an honest placebo. So it's one where patients are aware of the fact that they're receiving placebo. But can you describe that study and how, what, what you found so far? Yeah, uh, that's a really exciting experiment. The first author and principal investigator is Annabelle Belcher at the University of Maryland. I was the last author and supportive character, but she deserves all the credit. What, what was interesting about that study, many things were interesting, was that we used open-label placebo and half the patients received their absolute usual care. Half the patients received their usual care plus placebo. So it had open label in it. But also we added conditioning because it's very easy to condition with opioids in the same way that you condition with Pavlov's dogs. You give them food with a bell, food with a bell. The third time, you just give them the bell. They get the same reaction. So in this experiment, we were hoping, and we did find, that we gave them the methadone, an opioid, plus the placebo for a week or two. And eventually, we we're hoping that the fake pill would have the effect of the opioid. And to our surprise, 100 patients were able to stay in the methadone program much more than people without the placebo pill. We followed them for three months. And the reason it was important, the main problem with most methadone programs is people drop out. Much fewer people dropped out of the program because of the placebo pill. Blew my mind reading that study. That was, uh, that was like a pause point at the computer screen and like mouth along with the words to realize that, first of all, I hadn't been familiar with a conditioned open label placebo. So you're providing patients with a methadone pill alongside a placebo, hoping to create then that association, just like in the Pavlovian model where you ring a bell, you ring a bell, you ring a bell every time you serve dinner. And essentially the bell itself elicits that salivary response. And it sounds like, at least in this first population, you're finding that the reported symptoms of the opioid users, they're lessening. There's some relief in the symptoms that they're hoping to treat. Is that is that right? Yeah. I want to say that open-label placebo plus conditioning is much newer. There's been at least a dozen trials showing that open-label placebo 
compared to a no treatment or usual care has a significant impact on illnesses like low back pain, irritable bowel syndrome, migraine headache, knee osteoarthritis pain, cancer-related fatigue, even menopause hot flashes. Hmm. And you've been studying this field of research for, for a long time. Can you tell me what is the most surprising finding of the past few years? Like, what are you most excited about now? I'm, it's still hard counterintuitive me on some level because I believe the myth that you have to trick people to get placebo effects. I'm still amazed at the fact that we're getting these effects and hopefully, hopefully we'll be able at some point to use them. And do you think doctors will ever use these placebos fully? I want to tell you it's going to be slow. You will need more research to convince people. And doctors' self-identity is related to we don't use placebos. That said, I recently had conversations and hearings with the FDA, and I'm pretty sure there's not any regulatory barriers to using it. And we, a little more clarification is going to happen, but that's clearly what's happening. And ethically, it conforms to the AMA's code of ethics. So I think it's going to be a slow process, but I'm hoping that for people that have not gotten benefit from very common symptoms like low back pain, migraine, irritable bowel syndrome, cancer-related fatigue, that at some point people will see that after the third failure of a drug, maybe we should try a placebo. Huh. Professor Kapchuk, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me. That was Ted Kapchuk, professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. After the break, we'll talk about the pitfalls of techno-ableism and how the flavor of Florida's oranges might be changing. WNYC Studios is supported by the Natural Resources Defense Council. Using science, the law, and people power, NRDC is committed to confronting the climate crisis, protecting public health, and safeguarding nature. They address the impact of fossil fuels on communities and our environment. They help protect wildlife, public lands, and irreplaceable ecosystems that all living things depend on. They work to enact policies for clean air, clean water, and access to nature for all. You can help NRDC safeguard the earth for future generations. Visit nrdc.org WNYC for more information. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, the fewer on college campuses over the war in Gaza. Students have tried to have dialogue over and negotiate differences in how they see the world, even as they respond to tragedies and crimes overseas. Students and faculty from Harvard University on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is Science Friday, and I'm your host, Dessa. For all the dark content on our news feeds, humans can get real eager for a feel-good story, and we are sometimes too eager to find one in the coverage of disability technology. You might have seen videos online of a person with a disability being fitted into an exoskeleton, essentially wearing a robot to help them walk. Onlookers might cheer in the background, dramatic music swells, and we get the sense that we're watching something inspirational and empowering, a victory of the human spirit. This might seem like an absolute triumph of scientific innovation at first blush. But our next guest asks us to look again at what's actually going on in narratives like this one. Dr. Ashley Shu studies the intersection of disability and technology and how our collective fixation on these fancy, supposedly transformative gadgets could be doing more harm than good. In her new book, she coins the word 
techno-ableism to get to the heart of the matter. Joining me now is Dr. Ashley Shu, author of Against Techno-Ableism, an associate professor at Virginia Tech, based in Blacksburg, Virginia. Welcome to Science Friday. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Dessa. Will you walk me through the basics of techno-ableism? Yeah, so ableism is um, a bias against disabled people and towards um, sort of non-disabled ways of life. And techno-ableism is like one sort of strand of ableism that we see, like I see as someone who studies um, technology and science um, so often in, in our narratives about what it means to do good and humanitarian work in the world. But often sort of our narratives about technological infrastructure and and new technologies, especially when they're aimed at disability, get lauded as necessary and empowering for disabled people, as if being disabled itself is, is something um, to fight against and to always devalue so that being a disabled person and experiencing joy and, and, you know, normal things in life becomes something that's always like spoken up against by our scientific and technological enterprise. It means that so many, so many teams are lauded for their humanitarian work, often without ever talking to disabled people who might use their devices. This becomes a real problem for just existing as sort of an okay regular disabled person in the world. And when did you when did you start thinking about this? Because you, you coined the term techno-ableism, right? I did. And I coined it a number of years ago. So I became an amputee 10 years ago. I also became hard of hearing. I have tinnitus. I have chemo brain, uh, which I'm going to forget. Um, and then I, um, I also got a Crohn's diagnosis a few years after. All of these things sort of happened to me in the same year around 2014. And as I was becoming disabled, I knew three months ahead of time that I was getting an amputation. And, you know, people would tell me, you know, think more positively, uh, but it was coming. I had a very large bone tumor. And so many of the things that I was sent and that people wanted to tell me is that prosthetics are so advanced now, right? All the stories they've heard in the media is, you know, this, this idea that prosthetics are so advanced and I'll be restored back to normal and I'll come back better than ever. It wasn't until I talked to different prosthetists and the conversation was not about like how I'm going to be better than I ever was. It was that things will always be different from here on out. Um, the sort of normalcy that that I was used to will be changed. My normal will be very different. And that this is something that, you know, for the rest of my life, I'll get out of bed and I'll I'll put on a liner and then I'll put on my leg. And then if it's not fitting right, then I'll readjust everything. And it'll be, you know, the first thing I do in the morning, the last thing I do at night. You know, if things are going well with the technology, that's the that's the hope, right? But it was never going to be the same again, and we never see narratives like that um, represented in wider culture. Even though it's something I hear in disability community often, right? The idea that things might never be the same is, you know, sometimes presented as unsettling, and that's why you should, you know, take all of these preventative measures against disability. You know, when we're talking about how technologies are poised and, and positioned narratively, right, rhetorically um, against disability, I think it does a real harm to talking about what it is actually is to live with these technologies over time, about maintenance, about manufacturers not producing the right parts, about uh, wear and tear on your cyborgian components. I think I, I hadn't really considered the entire class of disability technology as, as a field before being alerted to it by your book. Can you can you explain like what is disability tech for people who might not be familiar with the parameters there? 
when I'm talking about disability tech, particularly, you know, that which gets framed in, in techno-ableist ways, um, it's often, you know, high-tech, bionic devices, usually exoskeletons, prosthetic legs, um, different types of retinal, neural implants, cochlear implants among them. Um, sort of sort of less explored in the literature is things like pacemakers, uh, which are also disability technologies. Things like things that are outside of me, like ramps. Um, those are disability technologies. And I even think about like the technologies we create for ourselves. So I think about sort of neurodivergent communities creating weighted blankets, OXO grippy handled kitchen gadgets designed by uh, Betsy Farber for her arthritis. Um, all of these things are disability technologies. The ones that I think get you know the most attention are usually ones that cost a lot of money, <laughs> have lots of computerized components and require the sort of maintenance that most people can't DIY. You also, you made a mention of, of some, some games that have had particular resonance with some members of the disability community. You mentioned like Pokemon and Dungeons and Dragons. Can you describe why you reference those in your book? So I referenced those in the book because I'm talking to other people. I don't know that I would have come up like with that on my own, but um, we had a panel of autistic people talking about autistic technologies a couple years ago. And the sort of conversation that ended up unfolding wasn't really about any of the technologies that you would think about. I, I love that this was the result. Um, but instead, it was about like what sorts of technologies actually help people not just feel included, but like they're making like an impact on one another, what sort of things help bond and gel. And they ended up talking a lot about Pokemon and about D&D and also about Discord, like emojis that helped express emotion, um, you know, for people whose emotions might be harder to read on their face for neurotypical people, like to have those sort of things where you could actually like create your own reactions and, and use the features of Discord in a way that help you express emotion. And, you know, when you talk about the way in which disability tech is crafted, you've been real clear about the fact that designing with is better than designing for. Can you describe some of the, like, approaches in development? Like, where where does innovation go off the rails? And why are we sometimes romanced, you know, by the stories that I mentioned at the top of the segment, right? These, like, wow, she can walk again. What are we getting wrong I mean, these glamorous stories often interview only engineers and scientists or the caretakers of disabled people. You rarely see disabled people interviewed and quoted. And if they do, it's usually like a very short quote um, in these stories. You know, at the front, sort of when we think about where disabled people get recruited into science projects is often at the level of of human, human subjects research. And so much needs to come before that. You're already at the point where you are testing something that you have a clear idea of how you would like it to be used. And you're sort of testing along the lines of use and you've already created it with particular possibilities. And that's like way too late in the process um, to be consulting the, the communities that in theory, you think you wanna work for. Um, Usually, I mean, sometimes people are working on things and trying to find a community for it. I think that looks a little different. I mean, so many of these news stories are like about ultra high tech, like sexy technologies. And, and we don't get the technologies that disabled people might care a lot more about. So particularly in the case of exoskeletons, you know, a lot of um, people who would be potential users. And of course, exoskeletons are posed as solving the problem of not walking. 
not walking is only a problem when there are no ramps, right? When we don't have like the right infrastructure to include, um, you know, wheelchair users. But plenty of people are using wheelchairs because they they need to sit down more often, right? Not everyone is paraplegic or quadriplegic who's using a wheelchair. Um, you know, people with different like fainting disorders uh, where they might you know fall down and hit their head and it would be better to use a wheelchair than get a, a severe head trauma, right? There are these sorts of, of trade-offs um, sometimes in, in thinking about how to use the technology. So I think it really like misunderstands the group that this is for. And then a lot of, you know, people who would be aimed for like um, paralyzed wheelchair users um, would also say, you know, we'd love to see more research about bowel and bladder health. This is a thing um, the bad cripple Bill Peace wrote a lot about, um, you know, critiquing exoskeletons as being humanitarian cover for military projects and not about disability at all. Ooh, that is a heavy, heavy point. And, you know, you, when you talk about um, the field and maybe also society at large being too excited about these like super high tech, sexy, mega glamour stories, what are the actual needs? Like, can you differentiate it? You, you wear a prosthetic. So if someone were to ask you, hey, what innovation would be helpful? It sounds like you're not going to answer with like a, a chrome plated exoskeleton. No, I actually really like the leg I have. <laughs> um, I... I um... I mean, I think a lot of the conversations among amputees about prosthetics, and I will say the vast majority of amputees are like amputees. So I am speaking in a very, like a much more narrow uh, uh, way. In fact, um, you know, issues with sweating are usually at the top of the list that we are filling our um, gel liners with with sweat each day um, and taking it off very carefully so you don't get liquid places, especially when you've had a long or hot day. Temperature control is often um, a conversation. You know, people want to talk about blister care, right? When you have a leg that doesn't fit just right or you, your body's changed because your body changes. The technology could be great one day and awful the next day. And it's only because you ate very salty onion rings at Disney World the day before, and now you can't get on your leg to walk. Real story. Very salty onion rings. Would do it again. And I'm like icing my leg and reclining and trying to like get it back to its normal size um, in order to spend my second day on vacation, right? Um, there, there's, there's things that are just sort of overlooked. The idea that you have a great technology, so then you're good to go. It's just never the real story. Yeah, it's not a complete account. So big leap. Ready? We're going from salted onion rings to outer space. Okay. You <laughs> you write in the book about outer space quite a bit, which is exciting because, of course, that's a, that's a passion point for Science Friday. You mention the Gallaudet 11. Will you, will you recount that story for us? Oh, yeah. Um, so the Gallaudet 11 are 11 deaf men who were recruited by NASA in the 1960s. And they were recruited and went through all the same astronaut training, but they were recruited because they were particularly good at a particular thing. And the particular thing that they were all great at was not getting motion sick because these were, I think, 10 of the 11 were congenitally deaf men. And then the other had lost their hearing very early in life. And deaf people, congenitally deaf people, don't get motion sick. Um, so NASA was like, these people are superior. We need to test out and learn from these deaf men 
um, so that our astronauts, you know, aren't heave hoeing in, in, in the space shuttle. So they're recruited because they're superior. They were never considered. None of them were ever considered as like astronaut candidates, but they went through all the same training being jerked around in different um, configurations. And the idea was that NASA could learn from deaf people, even though it wouldn't have considered deaf people for astronaut candidacy. There's kind of a, a double standard there, right? Hey, you've got this asset and skill that we clearly recognize as valuable for space training and information gathering. We're asking for your help, but we're not offering you the opportunity to participate in a more meaningful way in the program. Well, I know the Gallaudet at 11 enjoyed participating in this program. Um, I, I won't fault it there. I mean, women weren't even recruited um, at mm. this point in NASA's history. But there is there is a sense in which even when disabled people do things better, like have superior skills because of their embodiment, they are still considered inferior, right? This is ableism through and through, right? That someone whose body configuration might be like equal or better in say zero G, then, you know, if walking doesn't matter, right? If you're floating, um, there's a whole bunch of disabled people who will be equally good for a sort of, of mission if we're talking about something in zero G. Of course, everyone's disabled in space. If you come back from space, you're going to be disabled. Your bones are going to be uh, a little bit more lightweight, for instance. The shape of your eyes changes under different pressure. And of course, the sort of radiation a person gets will lead for significant times spent in space to, to greater disability. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Dr. Ashley Shu, author of Against Technoableism, about the intersection of disability and technology. And Ashley, you mentioned an unexpected advantage that ostomy bags might have in space. Would you talk about that? Oh, yeah. So it's really hard to poop in space. <laughs> it's difficult. Um, creating toilets for the International Space Station and for the shuttle program was very difficult often fail. Um, and sort of the backup, if your toilet fails, is sort of a baggie, a plastic baggie with some sticky material to stick to yourself, then help the poop out with like a like a finger bag situation. Mm. This was in the 60s and 70s. This was the backup. And, and they, you know, early missions, if they were short enough, really encouraged astronauts not to poop. The logistics were difficult. And there are whole like trainers for for like how to use the toilets um, um, in NASA's program. And the thing is, my friend Mallory K. Nelson, who is a brilliant artist and friend, um, has an ostomy bag. Our whole conversation about space is like, why aren't we modifying astronauts to have an easier time by giving them ostomy bags, right? It would be, it essentially is what the backup toilet is, right? Something sticky that you put on yourself, but it's a lot less refined. You write that the future is disabled. What do you mean by that? And how do you suggest we prepare for it? Oh, I mean, I mean a lot of things by that. The way I mean it in the book, right, is not just if we achieve our greatest space dreams, we're going to be disabled. But even if we stay close to the planet, we're going to be disabled. We have, we, we've changed our climate, right? Climate change is happening. It's changing weather patterns. It's changing disease patterns. We have higher rates of asthma. We have ticks in places that they usually wouldn't be, and Lyme disease spreading to more areas than, than it existed before. So the sort of lots of reasons to think sort of the future, whether we're on planet or off, 
is is going to be a disabled one, which puts the impetus on us to start doing better at planning for disability and to expect more disability in the future and not less. So much of our science fiction has given us the idea that the goal of technology is to eliminate disabled people, to eliminate disability, because our visions of the future have often excluded disabled people. But that's not going to be the case no matter which way we shake it. Dr. Ashley Shu is the author of Against Techno-Ableism, an associate professor at Virginia Tech, joining from Blacksburg, Virginia. Well, Ashley, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you so much, Dessa. It's been a pleasure. To read an excerpt from Against Techno-Ableism, go to sciencefriday.com slash disability. After the break, an invasive species is souring Florida's citrus crops. How one researcher is trying to save the oranges by discovering exactly which compounds make them sweet. WNYC Studios is supported by the Natural Resources Defense Council. Using science, the law, and people power, NRDC is committed to confronting the climate crisis, protecting public health, and safeguarding nature. They address the impact of fossil fuels on communities and our environment. They help protect wildlife, public lands, and irreplaceable ecosystems that all living things depend on. They work to enact policies for clean air, clean water, and access to nature for all. You can help NRDC safeguard the earth for future generations. Visit nrdc.org slash WNYC for more information. Each election season, political memoirs abound, doorstops that sometimes divulge more than intended. No matter how diligently they present themselves in the most electable light, they always reveal themselves, their insecurities, their fears, their ambitions. How to read a Politico on this week's On the Media from WNYC. Find On the Media wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Dessa, and this is Science Friday. Florida is known for citrus, particularly its fresh-squeezed orange juice. But citrus in Florida is struggling. For the last two decades, crops have been struck with a devastating disease called citrus greening. And Florida orange production has dropped some 94 percent in the past 20 years. Citrus greening is caused by an invasive insect, the Asian citrus psyllid. And it's threatening to wipe out the citrus growing industry in the state. Scientists are hard at work devising a myriad of possible solutions to save Florida's citrus crop. And joining me now is one of those scientists, Dr. Yu Wong, Associate Professor of Food Science at the University of Florida's Citrus Education and Research Center based in Lake Alfred, Florida. Dr. Wong, welcome to Science Friday. Thank you. Thank you for your introduction. Okay, uh, can we just start with the basics of the problem? So how does an insect cause citrus greening? Actually, citrus graining disease is a bacterial infection disease. So the bacteria we call is Silas. And the insect carry the bacteria and transmit it to, you know, the trees in Florida. You know, I've seen like images online. It's kind of icky. It looks as if the infected plants have been covered with like um, somebody shaving Parmesan cheese, as you would like over <laughs> a salad. And it affects the way that the fruit tastes as well on those infected plants. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. How do they taste? Well, the fruit tastes sour, less sweet sometimes with bitterness, and the aroma, like the very typical sweet orange aroma, decreased a lot. You're one of many scientists who are working to try to solve this problem. And I know that some teams are working on curing the disease and others are are focusing on breeding disease-resistant plants. 
And you're working to solve the citrus greening problem by like mapping the universe of citrus sweetness itself. Can you can you explain how your research is focused on flavor modulators? What is that? Most of the consumer they like sweet or sweeter thing. So for uh, our study, we would like to detect many different varieties and to find out what varieties actually could provide that very sweetness perception. But at the same time, because our consumer also concern about the health benefit you know, related to too much sugar consumption. Therefore, like we are looking for this flavor modulator. We try to find certain kind of a compound. Obviously, they're not sugar, which can enhance the sweetness perception. Okay, so when you use that term flavor modulator, you're talking about, it sounds like sort of a companion substance to the other flavors that we perceive. Is that right? Let's just say some aroma compound, like some very citrusy aroma, they have that naturally characteristic to enhance the sweetness. But there are also some other compound, like the sweetener we're talking about, stevia, for example, that's kind of a natural sweetener. So there are some sweetener existing in the citrus, and it could also provide that sweetness perception. There are also some other compounds, they're tasteless. So when you mix those compounds with sugar, they somehow enhance the sugar sweetness perception. Okay. And which of these flavor modulators are at play in the the citrus world? Well, so far, like we have been identified a certain kind of flavonoid-based structure compounds. And those compounds, they either taste sweeter or they could enhance the sweetness of sugar. How do you go about trying to solve the problem of these infected citrus trees? Like, how do, how do you apply that research to the problem at hand in Florida? You know, there are two major varieties has been used for the juice processing. And right now, due to the quality change and less sweetness in the juice from those two varieties, our idea is to blend more varieties into our juice pipeline. So those new varieties can be used in blending is some varieties we're considering containing those sweetener or sweet enhancers. So that's somehow like when we blend those varieties with the current variety, it could in increase the sweetness perception, but at the same time, it won't increase too much sugar in our juice product. Is that done only with healthy plants? Or is it also the case that you're finding that some of the research you've done is useful for growers who already have infected crops? Well, yes. Certain kind of variety right now growing in the ground also containing those sweetener. So right now the question is, how much we can increase those sweetener and sweet enhancer in the current existing variety. So that's probably need some uh, specific pre-harvest treatment or different combination of nutrient treatment, but that research is uh, ongoing research. I know that you've studied all different types of citrus in your work. Do you think that we're likely to see more varieties of orange juice, citrus juice on the shelves sometime soon? Well, definitely that's like what we hope for. Our breeding team at at University of Florida, they're having, I don't know how many, maybe 10,000 or even more than 10,000 varieties. But 
in the market, there are probably just like three or five varieties. You can think about the potential. Okay, so before I let you go, can I bother you for an inside tip? What is the sweetest, best orange juice that I'm not yet looking for on the market? <laughs> <laughs> so, well, like I said,、uh, right now the orange juice are using two varieties, Hamlin and Valencia. So the juice is blended with probably twenty percent of Hamlin and eighty percent Valencia. So Valencia is、uh, a very sweet and aromatic variety. Thank you so much for your help in helping us understand this issue and the work that's being done to address it. Thank you, Dr. Yu Wang, Associate Professor of Food Science at the University of Florida's Citrus Education and Research Center, based in Lake Alfred, Florida. A few years ago, I partnered with an fMRI lab and a neurofeedback practitioner, and we ran a little experiment to try to help me fall out of love. If it worked, I figured I'd finally be free from the old flame, and. More interesting as a songwriter, with attention to turn to something other than torch songs. I recently learned about another musician who also integrated neuroscience and memory into her work. Sarah Hennies is an award-winning composer and visiting assistant professor of music at Bard College. Her work has been performed at MoMA PS1 in New York and at international festivals, and her new piece. Motor tapes performed by Ensemble Daedalus takes its inspiration from a neuroscientific theory of the same name. Here is a brief clip. And now, to tell me about the neuroscience that inspired the piece is its composer, Sarah Hennies. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you. Happy to be here. Super stoked to have you. Okay, so this piece was inspired by a PBS special you saw about Oliver Sacks and music research. Is that right? It was, yeah.、Um, it was a, a TV version of his book *Musicophilia*. But the part that inspired the piece specifically is this brief scene where Sacks is hooked up to a brain scan, and he's saying how he's always loved Bach and he's never liked Beethoven. And they play him some Beethoven, and his brain just sort of looks normal. And then they play him a highly equivalent piece of music, sound-wise, by Bach, and all of a sudden his whole brain lights up. This is your Bach brain, and this is your Beethoven brain. Sorry, Ludwig. Yeah, sorry, Ludwig. <laughs> There's not much there. And so one of my questions always has been like, well, what is that like? Why would his brain respond so much to one piece of music and then not at all to some, you know, really similar thing? And so that's part of what inspired this piece. I mean, it sounds like your brain lit up <laughs> watching <laughs> Oliver Sacks' brain remotely on PBS.、Um, that relates specifically to this neuroscientific concept of motor tapes, right? That's the name of your piece, and and it sounds like that was the direct neuroscientific inspiration. Can you describe for the uninitiated what are motor tapes? Yeah,、um, his name is Rodolfo Yinas. He's a neuroscientist, and Sachs quotes this theory called motor tapes, where Yinas theorizes that the brain is a giant mass of constantly running tape loops, and that our decision to have a thought or move a muscle or anything is our brain. Calling up the tape related to those actions, like for instance, if you want to use a group of muscles at the same time to like walk, then that is your brain voluntarily choosing to call those loops up. But then, one of the big inspirations of the piece is that part of Sachs's book is about earworms、mm. and how 
the phenomenon of getting a song stuck in your head just over and over and over again. Particularly what interested me is for no reason that to me, there seems to be a correlation between the earworm and this theory of, of repetition. And like, I read the description of motor tapes to a friend of mine when I first heard about this and he just started laughing and he was like, you don't even need to write the piece. Like this is just describing music. Like Mm. he even uses the phrase random motor pattern noise generator. And it's like, well, there you go. There's your piece of music. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so so if I get it right, you know, you've got this this theory from Rodolfo Linas, who's talking about these looping background kind of brain activity that even if we're unaware of it, there's these constantly repeating signals that only then selectively rise to our conscious attention. I know music makers spend a lot of time thinking about how to balance repeating loops, you know, even just like a familiar chorus, with new motifs. How do you balance and how do you think about repetition in your own work and in this piece? Well, I've been working almost exclusively with repetition since, I guess, over 15 years now. But prior to 2021, most of my work would be these just long, long, long repetitions of really simple material. At first, it was single sounds and then single patterns. Like I have a piece called The Reinvention of Romance that's an hour and a half piece for um, cello and one percussionist. And the whole thing is just three or four minutes of a repeating pattern and then another one and then another one and then another one. And it was like, when I read the description of motor tapes, it was just like, this is what I'm doing. And then while I'm writing this piece, I thought, well, gee, our bodies are repetitious, our breathing and the way we walk and the way our eyes blink and the way our heartbeats are all repeating loops. And so it was when I read the motor tapes thing, it wasn't exactly that I thought, oh, I can do that. It was more I read it and I said, I recognize this. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that like in this piece, there are certain actually lived memories that are represented. Can you give an example of one? Yeah, a huge part of this piece is based on this memory I have from being a really young child, like I think five years old, and I had just learned to ride a bike. And I just have this persistent memory that always comes back to me my entire life at at random times. So through the Yinas theory, that loop is being called up involuntarily of the bike that I got had a radio on it. And this is in the 80s. And I, I can see it. I have this vivid memory of riding up and down my street with the song, I Want to Know What Love Is by Foreigner on the radio. Oh, man. And, you know, that song is ubiquitous. It's on the radio all the time. And every single time I hear it, I remember that. And then, of course, I have also had the question for years of why do I remember that? It wasn't special. At least it didn't seem special. It just was like, I just remember it. And this is what I'm so interested in is trying to answer that question of like, why? Like, I genuinely like just straight trying to understand myself Hmm. and that I've done this a lot that I feel like by putting these kinds of things into artwork, then you can sort of see them objectively. And I've learned a lot about myself that way, like not just as an artist, but like as a person. Yeah, totally. And sometimes it feels like you're just sort of born in a machine that you then reverse engineer to figure out how on earth it's working. And yeah, and I feel like my practice is based almost entirely on trying to like decode my identity. Like I'm trying to pull something out of me rather than create something out of nothing. Hmm. Hmm. You know, quick sidebar, first of all, just to say, 
having a radio on your bike in the 80s was a serious flex. You dropped that real yeah. casual, but please know <laughs> <laughs> that it was jotted down in points awarded. Um, what do we? What do you think that when we're listening to music that focuses on repetition in the way yours does, motor tapes specifically, like what do we learn about our bodies and about science, do you think, from investigating those loops? Like is there some fundamental truth about repetition and our organic selves? You know, everyone has a relationship to repetition, whether they know it or not, that it's pervasive at literally every level of society and our bodies down to the most basic physical and biological activity. I recently read in a book called Sound by Michelle Shion that the earliest sense experience of a fetus is that of the overlapping repetition of its own heartbeat and the parent's heartbeat. And again, it's like, oh, the thing that I'm doing is at the deepest possibly embedded human phenomenon that the very first thing we experience is these overlapping heartbeats, which is how the piece starts, that has this this sort of electrical pulse sound and then this very low, soft bass drum thing that is not reminiscent of a heartbeat exactly, but... freaking out because this is so interesting and then like even after we're in the world i mean this this kind of relentless cycle of repetition yeah i for me the reason i got so excited about this kind of work in the last couple of years is because i recognized this repetitive behavior i had where i would like repeat stories to people that feel really insignificant or something and then it would be years later where i would think oh that's why I'm into this. And, you know, a perfect example of that is that about 20 years ago, I was on tour with my old band and we were playing a show in Albuquerque and staying at a friend of my guitar player who was a mathematician. And I had had this conversation with her that I just, I repeated the story to so many times that it was just so funny that she had said, yeah, I came up with this award-winning theory while I was on ecstasy. And mm. that's a funny story, but it's not that funny. Like, it's not a repeat it for 20 years kind of story, but it was only probably a decade later that when I started thinking about my gender and when I started transitioning that I realized that this person was the first trans woman that I had ever spoken to. And so it's like my brain remembered that for that reason. And it wasn't until I had to kind of decode it later that I realized why I was telling people this story all the time. And so that experience is is really like fundamentally informs um, this piece, Motor Tapes. Oh, man, thank you so much, Sarah, for taking the time yeah. to talk to us about this piece. My pleasure. That was Sarah Henney's composer and scholar. And that's all the time we have today. If you missed any part of the show or would like to hear it again, subscribe to our podcasts or ask your smart speaker to play Science Friday. Every day now is Science Friday. <laughs> Join us throughout the week on social media and try our newsletters, sciencefriday.com slash newsletters. You can also reach out the old-fashioned way. Email us. The address is scifry at sciencefriday.com. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. I'm Dessa. Hi, Ira here. Just a heads up, starting next week, you'll be hearing a new shape to the podcast. But don't worry, same cool science in slightly different packaging coming in easy-to-handle chunks. Think of it as a daily dose of science, delivered straight to your ears. Now every day really can be Science Friday. 
To learn more and never miss your daily dose of science, subscribe to our podcast. 